The Pasuk says in this week's Pasha, Vatamas Sarah Bikiryas Arahi Chevron, Vayavo Abraham Lispog Lisarah Valiv Kota. So it's hard not to ask the question, what's the difference between lispod, hespeid, and lifkot, and to cry? And the answer is obviously. A hespeid is to review and to understand and to analyze. And lifkot, to cry is an emotional response. I think for me, and I'm pretty much representative of the group here, the lispod part comes naturally. And we understand and we're here to learn more about Rabbi Sachs and Ron Levracha's life and the way he thought, and contributions. But Liv Kota is also part of it. We also want to know more about who he was as a person. We want to feel a loss that I think we understand intellectually, but we feel less emotionally. Um, you know, to me, I think, like most of you, I did not know Rabbi Sachs and Kronel Rafa personally, but I read much of his writings. I read a lot of his writings. But more than that, I felt like he was a person who defended... The Jewish people. It may not. It may be that there's not a single Jew in the world who has who was or is respected as much outside of Judaism than was Rabbi Sachs. I saw the the Hesped notice from Prince Charles this afternoon. It's personal. He clearly, really, really respected Rabbi Sachs, and that standing allows you to call out anti-Semitism and to call out anti-Israel behavior and to act in a role which Rabbi Sachs did, which was to be a defender of the Jewish people. And so we're gathered here to learn more about his life. We'll do so first from Rav Abiyat Tabori, who's connected to this yeshiva in more ways than anybody could imagine, but also is connected to Rabbi Sachs, and hopefully he'll be able to share with us personal recollections. We'll then hear from Rabbi Gottlieb, and finally we'll hear from Rav Gabriel Rosa. Shalom. I'm sure you can find many people probably even sitting in this room that read more of Rabbi Sachs' Torah than I do, did. Probably know more about his Torah than I do. And when I was asked by Rav Khan this morning to come speak, I uh, didn't hesitate. Mostly because Rabbi Yara Khan asked me. But also because the last time I met Rabbi Sachs was exactly a year ago in London where we made a memorial for my Abba and uh, Rabbi Sachs showed up to the memorial and spoke there and really touched us very much by his presence and the honor that he gave to my Abba by just being in the memorial was overwhelming and I felt if someone asked me to speak about Rabbi Sachs, who am I to say no after what he did to our fa- after what he did to honor my Abba? I have to explain a little bit my connection. What is my connection exactly? It's a bit of a weird connection to Rabbi Sachs, and it's really through my wife's family, my mother-in-law, um, who many of the rabbis in Yeshiva here know, worked with Rabbi Sachs for many many years, running his office in the UK. And she was there from the very beginning when he started to work as a chief rabbi of the UK. And she was very, very important, I believe, in Rabbi Sachs's um, work. Also, my brother-in-law, Lava Shalom Mark, who learned in this yeshiva, was very close to the rabbinim sitting here in this room, was also very close to Rabbi Sachs. I believe... I can say that if Rabbi Sachs had Talmidim, then Mark, Allah Shalom, would be considered a real Talmud. Like my mother-in-law said today, I think Mark is very pleased to have Rabbi Sachs back. During the years that I lived in England, I actually lived in England for two years, I was in Akiva there, and during my visits, and working in the UK, I got to know Rabbi Sachs not as a Talmud, but as a almost um, observed him from a close relationship with my family, with my wife's family. I would say Rabbi Sachs became part of our family 
in not a direct way, but really someone that we felt his presence always around us. When I got married, I remember my in-laws said that we have to invite Rabbi Sachs to the wedding, and he's coming to the wedding. He's coming from England to the wedding here in Israel. And I never heard of him. I had enough rabbis to worry about at my wedding, enough kibbutzim to give out. I couldn't understand who this rabbi is, and I have to give another kavod, and I was told not only, only are you giving a kibbutz, he has to speak at the wedding. And I remember, I'm Israeli. No one speaks at Israeli weddings. And someone I don't even know of? An English rabbi? I mean, really? And um, Rob Sachs came to the wedding and he spoke at the Rav Druckmann. And I wonder sometimes if that's the only wedding in the world that had Rav Druckmann and Rav Sachs speak at the same wedding. As I said, during the years that I lived in England, I was always able to sneak in a visit. My mother-in-law guarded Rabbi Sachs' office. No one was allowed in without her permission. And I was always able to sneak in, to ask, to question, have a little chat with him, which looking back was maybe then taken for granted, but looking back now was very, very special. Once when I was, uh, once when I was uh, at Rabbi Ben Akiva in the UK, I was once in a position where I was very hesitant what to do. I wasn't sure what to do. I had to make some type of meeting and reform shul. I was very confused what to do. And uh, I immediately called my mother-in-law, who caught Rabbi Sachs as he was walking up to some podium to speak. And I said, Rabbi Sachs, I need your permission to go into this reform synagogue. Without it, I'm not going in. And he assured me that it was okay. It was always a phone call away. For me personally, because my mother-in-law, but really, all the young rabbis growing up in the UK, I think, felt that Rabbi Sachs was always them was always there for him, for them. It was very unique. He loved the young, the, their, the energy of B'nai Akiva, of the youth, of the leaders, and he was always there for them. We even have a funny story in our family where when my son Yair was born, 2002, Rabbi Sachs was given an interview at the time, in the Times in London, and it wasn't a great interview didn't work out so well. He was talking a little bit too freely to the Post, who were just quoting everything he said and twisting a little bit here, twisting a little there. And the reason for this uh, balagan was really because my son here was born and my mother-in-law Sima left Rabbi Sachs for a day or two by himself. She promised never to do that again afterwards. A few years ago, Rabbi Sachs came to our yeshiva with Eretz Tzvi to uh, speak in the yeshiva. And I was a mod here. I was the one who was uh, in charge of the questions. And at some point, I said to Rabbi Sachs, it's time for one more question. And everyone was like jumping and throwing their, head, their, their arms in the air. And I said, Rabbi Sachs, I will ask you the last question. I said, we have an argument amongst the rabbis in the yeshiva about the future of modern orthodoxy, if there's such. What do you think, Rabbi Sachs? Do you think there's a future for modern orthodoxy? And I was actually very pleased to see that uh, Rabbi Alex Israel posted this in his Facebook today. He didn't, he didn't say as it was. Okay, he almost got it right. But he did get, he did get the answer. Um, he got the answer right. And Rabbi Sachs immediately uh, said, What? You think I'm modern Orthodox? You call me a modern Orthodox Jew? What you, I'm not a modern Orthodox Jew which really quite shocked us, because if I would think of anyone today that would really define the concept of modern Orthodox Jew, surely it's Rabbi Sachs. And he went on to explain how being a modern Orthodox Jew really minimizes you, puts you in a very small part of the world. Well, he says, I see my job, my responsibility in the world to connect to the world. I don't want to minimize myself to a certain group of people. Jews is one part of the world, and in those, Orthodox is even a smaller. And even in that Orthodox world, modern is even a smaller portion of, of the group called the Jewish people. I want to see myself as a person, a Jew, who engages with the world around. And he started speaking about what he does. I write in the BBC, I write in 
the Times. I uh, speak in the BBC. I meet uh, religious figures. And I have to tell you that as, an, as, a, as a person who grew up in Israel, went through all the systems here in this country, Shvati Chonit and Hezder, Rabbi Sachs, for me, really opened a world to what it means to engage with the world. With your permission, I'll just say a, a short idea which I really, which I really uh, believe in, which is the difference between Chag Pesach and Chag Sukkot. People usually talk about how Chag Pesach and Sukkot both celebrate at Mitzrayim with one big difference. Pesach is all about internalizing, building the Jewish people, the, the Jewish people as a result of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. However, Sukkot is also Chag Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but it really is about how we reflect out, how we look to the world, how we understand the Beit HaMikdash, and Yitzhak Mitzrayim has a message to the world. Rabbi Sachs, I believe, was a Jew of Chag Sukkot. He was a Jew who really was able to reflect to the world. He was the only people in our generation, and the truth is, I'm not sure when, when else in Jewish history was there a voice heard around the world where he had what to say, not just on the, you know, tikkun olam, because he was, a, he was Jewish and he was also, uh, I don't know what, uh, a lawyer or a judge or, or a, a, a soccer player. He was a Jew who had a message that the Torah, what does the Torah have to say to the world? What do the Goyim have to learn from the Torah? I mean, was there ever, was there ever such a person? And I, I mean, I, know, I don't know, but for sure not in our generation, that people were listening to. In the UK, when there were challenges, questions, in the papers, in the media, they turned to Rabbi Sachs. They just sometimes make fun of him a little bit in some circles, you know, oh, he's a great chief rabbi for the Goyim. But you know what? That's really true. He was a great chief rabbi for the Goyim. It was wonderful. It was wonderful how the Goyim were able to hear what he had to say also. The Jewish community, of course, but also non-Jews, could listen to what he had to say. <clears throat> that was a very, very powerful thing that I don't know anyone else in our generation that could do such a thing. The last thing I want to share with you is I used to sometimes, as Rav Benyakiva, think to myself that the biggest threat, I used to joke, as if with him, not with him personally, but that to religious Zionism with Rabbi Sachs. Because Rabbi Sachs was a great Zionist, he loved Israel, but he was an only Jew, one of the only Jews that I knew that really believed in what it means to live in Chutzars today as a firm Jew. He wasn't there just as a default of not, not making Aliyah. He really believed in a responsibility that Jews had in Chutzlaretz, to engage with the people around them. He had a mission. And I used to joke sometimes that, you know, as a, I was Rav Akiva, and I was always trying to uh, push, you know, Aliyah, and Rabbi Sachs was a real, as if, as if a threat to this, as if, of course he wasn't, but as if, because he really challenged me to think about what does it mean for Jews to live in Chutzlaretz today, and what their responsibilities are. And I would like just to end with that thought. Whatever you do in the future, wherever you might be, wherever you might end up, that's your decision. But really, when you read Rabbi Sachs, when you see what he has to say, you will notice that we have responsibility not only to ourselves, not only to Am Yisrael, but to the entire world. That is something that I felt very, very strong with his message of who he was. Yisich About 10 years ago, at lunch here in the yeshiva in the Charochel, I was speaking with my good friend, my former Chavrusa, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, probably more well known to you guys as the now president of YU. But he and I were both learning here at the time, and we were schmoozing, and I forget exactly the context of the conversation, but somehow between the two of us, 
we were discussing who were the leading rabbinic figures in the world. We weren't discussing who was the biggest gadol, who was the greatest lamdan or posek. That's like a different kind of yeshiva shabbatala. But this was a different kind of batala. We were talking about who, as a public intellectual, as an orator, as an ability to impact people. And we mentioned all sorts of names, all of whom, great rabbanim, great scholars, talented speakers, but certainly throughout the conversation, one thing was absolutely clear. Rabbi Sachs was number one, and whoever was number two wasn't even close. When I heard of his passing this Matzai Shabbos, I was reminded of that story and that conversation. Because this really is the magnitude of the loss for the Jewish people. And if anything, the impact that he had grew over the last 10 years. And he probably had, as was already alluded to, an even greater impact after he retired from being chief rabbi than he had in the 22 years that he was chief rabbi. And therefore, what I'd like to do is share with you a few ideas from Rabbi Sachs's writings, from his speeches, and specifically picking a few ideas that we had in the short time that we have that highlight aspects of what I think were his incredibly unique and powerful and impactful influence and contribution. In the year 2000, 20 and a half years ago or so, Rabbi Sachs was the first Jew ever invited to give a special, very famous lecture that was given annually in front of the royal family and other distinguished guests at Windsor Castle, which is the world's oldest inhabited castle. Rabbi Sachs describes... You can find this in the first essay in his Haggadah. He describes the challenge that he felt as he was preparing to speak and choosing what he would give over during that moment. After all, he obviously needed to be respectful, but at the same time, he wanted to pay homage to the history of British and English Jewry, which is not exactly 100% pretty. The first blood libel in history... Norwich 1144, the York Massacre of 1190, expulsion in 1290, and Rabbi Sachs was trying to figure out how he could acknowledge that and at the same time be respectful of the royal family sitting there at Windsor Castle. And he begins the speech by speculating what it must be like to be a royal, what it must be like to inherit this castle with its history going back to William the Conqueror, King Arthur's Round Table. Growing up, he says, I have no doubt you must have learned the history, and for you, learning the history of this castle was more than just discovering facts, because you had inherited this building. It wasn't just history, it was becoming your story, your history. You didn't choose it. He says, if this would be me, I'd be thinking, I didn't choose this as my history. It chose me because I inherited it. Now I have certain obligations. I'm morally bound. He said, I would feel if I was you to pass on that story and to pass on that legacy. Jews, continued Rabbi Sachs, will never own a building like Windsor Castle. But we own something, he said, which is in its own way no less majestic and more consecrated in time. The Jewish castle is built not of bricks and stone, but of words. It too has been preserved lovingly for centuries, preserved and given over from one generation to the next, cherished and sustained from father to son, and from father to son. As a child, said Rabbi Sachs, I knew that one day I'd grow up to inherit that Jewish story from my parents, and by so doing, become obligated to transmit those words, that story, to my children. 
it's not a building, he said, but nonetheless, it is a place to live. More than it belongs to us, we belong to it. What we have is not something which is a physical construction, but we have something else. We have something more. Our castle is the Jewish story. As parents, he went on to describe, this is our sacred obligation at Pesach. The story of the slaves and becoming free, the journey toward the promised land. Though at times throughout our very difficult journey in circuitous history, it has sometimes seemed out of reach, but we never gave up. And turning towards his distinguished guests, including members of that royal family, he said, I, too, am part of that story. I'm part of that journey. It's my legacy, and it defines who I am. Just as the heirs to this castle, I, too, am a link in the chain of generations, and I own a a duty and a loyalty to the past and to the future. I still remember the first time I read that speech. I was blown away. First of all, just the diplomacy, the ability to negotiate and to balance being respectful and paying homage to the royal family and paying tribute to Jewish life and experience. But more importantly, was his image of the Mesorah, a castle of words. What a stunning and unforgettable image. What I'd like to suggest, thinking about his passing, is that more broadly, it wasn't just a beautiful image that he conjured up to describe what Masorah is, but in and of itself is a significant part of his greatness. It wasn't just, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with some of his writings, you've seen his speeches, It wasn't just the brilliant and creative ideas, but the language, which was so fluid, so masterful, the ability to turn a phrase, to paint a picture, to capture the imagination, is just breathtaking. When President Kennedy awarded Winston Churchill with an honorary American citizenship in 1963, he summed up Churchill's wartime speeches with the unforgettable description, he, meaning Churchill, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. I believe the same can be said for Rabbi Sachs. He mobilized the English language and he sent it into battle for the hearts and minds of Jews living in the modern world. Every article, every Dvar Torah, every speech, Every interview, off the cuff, was a castle of beautiful words. Number two. A second point, I think, can be made about the impact that he had with a story that he liked to quote. I found it in at least two different places. We quoted this story in different components. And it describes, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when Chabad Rabbanim started making their way to the former Soviet Union. One of them, one of the shluchim, recounted to Rabbi Sachs how a a woman, a very modern-looking Russian woman, had come over to the rabbi and was lamenting and complaining and crepsing about all sorts of people who more or less knew she was Jewish on some level for a long time. But now, whenever she walks down the street, they scream derisively at her, Zhid! as an insult to her being a Jew. And she was heartbroken over this. And the rabbi told Rabbi Sachs what he told this woman. The Chabad rabbi said to her, you know, if you wouldn't tell me that you're Jewish, just looking at you as if I was someone on the street and you walked by, there's no way to be able to tell that you're Jewish. And yet me, with my yarmulke, with my hat, with my beard. I walk down the street, the same streets as you all the time. 
and no one ever screams jid at me. Why do you think that is? Why are they screaming it at you, but not at me, who's so much more obviously Jewish? The woman had no idea. So the rabbi, Chabad Rav, told the woman as follows. He says, the reason is, because they scream at you, because they know you'll be embarrassed. They don't scream at me, because they know I'll take it as a compliment. When reflecting on this story, Rabbi Sachs made the following powerful, I believe profoundly true point. Non-Jews, he said, respect Jews who respect their Judaism. And non-Jews are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by their Judaism. This is not just a, I think, an insightfully true point. I also think it is so relevant to Rabbi Sachs as to almost be autobiographical. As Ellie alluded to before, or Tabori just mentioned, and I'm sure Gabriel will mention as well, because you can't not mention this when you speak about Rabbi Sachs. Perhaps his greatest accomplishment was that he was an unending, unbelievable source of pride for the Jewish people. I'm sure, no doubt, mostly for British Jewry, but he wasn't just theirs. British Jewry gave birth to him. But he then became a child of world Jewry. And he became the pride of every Jew throughout the world. Somebody who looked like him, and there's no question he did it deliberately. I don't, didn't see this in an interview, but I have no doubt. He wore a big black velvet yarmulke deliberately. It was going to be one of those yarmulkes that whenever you interviewed, no matter where you were, you would know he was wearing a yarmulke. He was proud of it. The big yarmulke, the beard. And yet, at the same time, so dignified, so articulate, he truly was a singular source of pride for Jews all around the world. He was proud to be an Orthodox Jew. He was proud to be an Orthodox rabbi. And in so doing, he brought all of us so much pride. Number three. By Sachs a recurring theme in many of the published Ivrei Torah, certainly the ones in Sefer Shmos, but you find it throughout, is his unbelievably emphasis and his articulate advocacy for the importance of Talmud Torah and Jewish education. Not only for the youth of the UK, but also for ongoing learning for adults. I want to share with you a particular Dvar Torah. It's really amazing. Again, you'll find fragments of this in different parts of his published writings. If you want one place to go, you can go to Covenant and Conversation in Parsha's Bo, 5767. But you can find it in other places as well. Complimenting, I'm putting a few things together. And he describes the speech that Moshe Rabbeinu gives the Jewish people shortly before they leave Mitzrayim. It's the moment they were waiting for. After 210 years, they were slaves, finally about to go free. And Moshe gathers the people to address them. And the question is, what would he speak about? What would he tell them? What would his speech be at this fateful juncture? Now we can imagine many topics, theoretically, that would have been totally appropriate for such a moment And for such a speech, he could have spoken to them about freedom and the end of slavery. He could have spoken to them about the destination of where they're going, the land of Eretz Yisrael, the challenges of the journey. All of those would have been appropriate topics and no doubt made a great speech. But none of those is what Moshe Rabbeinu spoke about. Instead, Moshe Rabbeinu speaks about children. He speaks not about the present but about the distant future and the duty to pass on the memory of what they were experiencing to generations yet unborn. Three times, we're familiar with all these psukim, but to to appreciate them in context, it's so powerful. 
once he points this observation out to us, three times in the immediate context of Yitzias Mitzrayim, Moshe says the following, Perak Yud Beis, V'hayek yomru eleichem b'neichem, ma'avodah hazos lachem, v'amartem zevach pasach l'ashem. A little while later, the beginning of Perak Yud Gimel, v'higadata levincha, v'yomahu lemor, v'avor zeh asa Hashem li, v'tseisimi Mitzrayim. And then just six sukkim later, still in Perak Yud Gimel, v'hayek yishalcha bincha, mochor lemor, ma'azos, v'amartela, v'chozik yad, kutsyanu Hashem mi Mitzrayim. Think about it. They were about to gain their freedom after 210 years of backbreaking and deadly servitude and slavery. And what is the message that Moses is giving them? Not that you're about to be free. Not that you're about to go into your own land. Not that you're some mamlechas kohanim. The message he's giving them is you're about to become a nation of educators. And what the Torah is teaching us, said Rabbi Sachs with such beautiful and memorable and a memorable phrase, is that freedom is won not on the battlefield, nor in the political arena, but in the human imagination and will. To defend the country, you need an army. But to defend the society, you need education. You need families and an educational system in which ideals are passed on from generation to next, never lost never despaired, never obscured. At the dawn of our nation, when we were becoming an Am, the Jewish people become what kind of nation? A nation whose passion is education, whose citadels were the schools and yeshivas, and whose heroes will be the teachers. What greater description could we give about Rabbi Sachs himself? It's not just the practical impact, which I know and our friends who are from the UK could tell us more about the incredible impact he had, his legacy as a chief rabbi on day school education in England, but that in so many ways he became the educator of Am Yisrael. During his tenure, and as I mentioned, even more so after he retired from being chief rabbi, the weekly Divrei Torah, the incredible speeches, the seemingly endless, brilliant books, all written within three months start to finish. That was his MO. Read and studied by thinking Jews and, yes, as was mentioned, non-Jews throughout the world. Incredible. I want to close by mentioning, if I can, two more, two more points. We're very much on schedule. A dear friend of mine, Rabbi Mark Wiles, who runs a very important cure of organization in Manhattan, has an annual memorial lecture in memory of his mother, the Ruth Wiles Memorial Lecture. And once he had Rabbi Sachs as the guest speaker. And I'll never forget a story that Rabbi Sachs told during that speech about Sir Moses Montefiore was once asked by someone, it's hard to know without context of these speeches, it's like kind of a G'daylum story, sometimes you hear the, the, the punchline is the answer, you kind of wonder which Nudnik asked the question to get the answer that we're Zoka to pass on from generation. So I don't know who asked Montefiore this question, but somebody asked him, how much Montefiore, the richest Jew, how much are you worth? To which Montefiore responded, some number of thousands of pounds. To which the Nudnik, you know, doubled down, on his nudnikness, and said, yeah, but I know that's not even close. You have much, much more. Why would you give me that number? So Montesquieu responded, and he said to him, you didn't ask me how much I have. You asked me how much am I worth. And we're worth what we're willing to share with others. The number I gave you is the amount of tzedakah I gave this past year. That's how much I'm worth. And the message, Rabbi Sachs, again, in his inimitable way, was communicating during that lecture, is yet again, as I've mentioned in my previous points, to me, in hindsight, so autobiographical 
and describing him. He shared so much. He wasn't a business tycoon, but he was a tycoon of the mind, a tycoon of the nefesh. And what Hashem had given him, what he worked so hard to amass, he gave it away as quickly as he could amass it. The number of ways, again, especially in the last 10 plus years, but even before that, the number of ways, the amount of divrei Torah, again, always so high level, so polished, so thoughtful, in so many different venues, constantly, constantly sharing, enabled by the generosity of many of his wonderful supporters from England, but still, it's nice that they were willing to support him, but he had to have the content and the willingness to share, and he did. He walked away voluntarily from being the chief rabbi because he saw, which is an unbelievable thing to be able to see, that he could actually have even greater impact by being a rabbi without a position. By having no position, he ended up having the greatest position and the greatest impact. And it was all based on his desire to share. And the more he shared, the more he was worth. To conclude, I want to mention an interview that he gave actually quite a while ago. He gave it right after he retired. But it's an interview that maybe even some of you saw. The end of it was making the rounds on social media last night and this morning. And it was an interview that he gave to Tablet Magazine right after he had retired. Very interesting and worthwhile interview to read, the whole thing. But at the end of the interview, the interviewer noted and asked Rabbi Sachs directly that, and I don't know, maybe, maybe people in, in England knew this, I certainly did not know this until just recently, that apparently he had previously had two other bouts with cancer. Once when he was in his 30s, and once when he was in his 50s. And unfortunately, the one he did survive was the one that came back in his 70s. And the interviewer asked him a very good and I think legitimate and probing question, which is, given Rabbi Sachs the type of things he writes and speaks about as a rabbi and a thinker and a theologian, it's stunning that he's never even once incorporated his struggles with life and death, his own health issues, into any of his writings. Many, many thinkers, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, Many thinkers, Jewish, not Jewish, Orthodox, not Orthodox, if they've gone through and survived a life-threatening illness or experience that gives them certain insight and they want to reflect on that in various forms and ashkaf and machshava, who would if you would, I would have bet anything that of all people, Rabbi Sachs, if, if unfortunately he hadn't be sick and then he survived it, I would have imagined more than anyone he would have incorporated it. And he never, ever did, not even once. So that's a pretty good question, I think. That's how the interview ends. The interviewer asks him, why not? So he says as follows. He said it's very simple. His father, who he spoke about a lot, always with great Derek Eretz, but in every interview I heard him mention his father, he always points out his father is a very simple Jew, very spiritual and committed and believing Jew, but very limited education, very simple. And he said towards the end of his life, he suffered greatly. He went through five different operations. I think it was in his 80s at the time. Each one, you can only imagine, difficult operations at a very advanced age, weakening him terribly. And even though, as Rabbi Sachs says in this interview, again, that my father didn't have much of an education, but he knew how to say Tehillim. And I used to see him each time he would say another parak Tehillim, getting stronger and stronger. And he said, I observed from my father as if his mental attitude was, I am leaving this Hashem, if he sees fit that it's now time for me to go, then it'll be time for me to go. And if he still needs me to do things here, he'll look after me. That was his father's attitude about each surgery. So describes Rabbi Sachs. We are very fortunate that Akarish Baruch Hu realized both 40 and 20 years ago that there was so much more for Rabbi Sachs to do and gave him each of those previous two times 
a refuah, another lease on life, for him to be able to contribute and give us so much. We were beneficiaries of that. But unfortunately, what brings us here today is how the interview ends, in some sense. Because Rabbi Sachs, after describing his father's emuna, he then describes how that helped him, and how he adopted the very same attitude in emuna in his previous bouts of sickness. On both occasions, says Rabbi Sachs, I felt as if, if this is the time that Hashem needs me up there, then thank you very much indeed for my time down here. I've enjoyed every day, and I feel blessed. And if he wants me to stay here, if there's still work for me to do, then he'll give me a reform. I put my trust in him, said Rabbi Sachs. There was no test of faith. I have nothing to write about. There was no great theological awakening when I was sick. There was no great test of faith. If he needs me up there, Hashem will take me up there. And if he still thinks I have what to do down here, he'll leave me down here. There was no test of faith, just a few simple moments as which to say, In his hand, I placed my soul. Said Rabbi Sachs, and this is how the interview ends. That was my thought. And since we say every day those very words in Adon Olam, I don't feel the need to write a book about it. It was for me not a theological dilemma at all. I had faith, said Sachs. Full stop. That's all. That's in quotes. I had faith. Full stop. So, two points to conclude. Number one is what you see here is something so inspiring. It's not unique to Rabbi Sachs, but so inspiring. And that is when you see somebody of such towering intellect who also possesses an Amun Abshuta. I remember when Rav Lichtenstein died, numerous times I heard Rabbi Terrigan speak, mentioned different things about Rav Lichtenstein. It was one of the themes that Rabbi Terrigan always would emphasize when speaking about Rav Lichtenstein as well. And it's something that, you know, as Talmidim, he would always be encouraging us. You know, we're often very attracted to the sophisticated mind. But we have to be no less attracted to and followers of the simple and the pure heart, the Amun Abshuta. Sometimes you have people with Amun Abshuta without the mind, and plenty of times, unfortunately, you get people with the mind without the Amunah. But when you can combine those, the way Rabbi Sachs did, to see someone who was such a giant of intellect, I mean, just towering, I assume that if he had never spent one day in Torah, never one day as a rabbi, and had just been an academic, he would have been one of the greatest in the world in whatever field he chose. It's just mind-boggling. He just kind of shakes his arms and just, Makairis, I don't mean our kind of Makairis, but even the, you know, the Murichol Makairis, just, just mind-boggling how much he knew. Brilliant. And with such a moon of shuta, to say this about himself, he clearly wasn't posting. I think he might have been even in bed. I don't think he understood why people would even make a big deal about this, probably. He'd probably be laughing at me for stressing this. But I think I'm right to stress this. Because it's such a rare and inspiring combination to have such sophistication married to such serious but sincere and simple, yes, simple faith. That is the hallmark of a true Godot. Rabbi spoke about his time down there or up here, up there or down here. And all I can say to conclude is we thank Rabbi Sachs for all that he gave us down here. And we pray, we daven with the same amuna, the same faith that Rabbi Sachs displayed. We daven to the Rabbanu Shalom that Rabbi Sachs' legacy and his teachings will continue to live on and you continue to inspire future generations. He is a When any person passes away, the world is emptier than it was before. Each person has something unique about them. Each person brings something new to this 
big world that we all live in. And when they leave it, those of us who are left behind are left with less. But when I heard last night that Rabbi Sachs, Satsal had passed away, that sense of emptiness was even more tangible. Rabbi Sachs was different, not just in the way that all people are different, that all people are unique. He also did something different. He was a teacher of Torah par excellence. But the amount of people who he taught and the different variety of people who he reached was unsurpassed in our generation. His teachings touched the hearts and awoken the minds of so many different Jews all across the globe. But his voice carried even further than the confines of his proud Jewish people. People of other faiths looked to him as a voice of moral leadership and guidance. People of no faith at all respected him and pricked up their ears when he had something to say. Just little more than a couple of hours after the news of his passing spread, Prime Ministers and Princes lined up one after the other to pray tribute to Rabbi Sachs. And when they did so, they weren't merely showing solidarity with the Jewish community for their loss. It was personal. They were talking about a man who they had learned from. They were talking about a man who they had been personally touched by his teaching and by his spirit. And the more I read of these tributes pouring in from around the world, the more one phrase in this week's parsha reverberated around my head. Avram goes to the Bnei Chet to buy a plot of land to bury Sarah in, to bury his wife in. The Bnei Chet tell him it's unnecessary. But they address him with a phrase which is given to no other person in the entire Torah. They say to him, Nisi Elokim You're a prince of God in our midst. They respected Avraham. This lonely Jew, who was counter-cultural by his essence, who preached a religion unlike anything that they believed in, had made such a significant and lasting impression upon them. Those around him recognized him as a Nisi Elokim. Wherever Rabbi Sachs went, he was recognized as a Nasiyalokim. When Jews were with him, they felt, they felt more proud about their Jewishness. When non-Jews were with him, they realized his greatness, and the Jews were proud and stood proud because of it. He, like Avraham, managed to influence so many more people than he should have had. And so I asked myself one simple question. How did he do it? What made so many people respect him? How did he have so much influence? I asked myself the question again regarding the original Nesiyelokim, regarding Avram. What made him so successful? How did Avram become one of the most influential people in human history? To answer this question, I've done what so many people in our generation have done when faced with the challenge. I've turned to Rabbi Sachs to provide the answer. Rabbi Sachs seeks to explain why the original Nesiyelokim, Avraham, had such an impact on human history. After all, this was a man who led no army. He conquered no lands. He had no official position of power. He had no big statues put up to remind everyone of his strength. He saw no glory, even it refused to accept the spoils of war. He was merely content to sit in the desert, in his tent, open his home to the hungry and weary, wait on them, and then, when thanked for his hospitality, he directed them to the person who they should truly be thankful for, he who had truly provided all the things that we benefit from. Yet the three main monotheistic religions in the world all claim that Avraham was the beginning of their creed. Over half of the world's population today look at Avraham as being a source of their, as a source of inspir- a source of inspiration. Rabbi Sachs 
seeks to explain this with a theme that appears many times across his writings, which distinguishes between two different ways in which one can have an impact on others. Power and influence. Power and influence are often confused. We think that people who have power have influence. They can force other people to do their will. But really, power and influence are different. Perhaps they're even opposites. If I have total power and I decide to share it with nine other people, I only have one-tenth of the power that I started with. If I have a certain measure of influence and then I share it with nine other people, I now have a lot more influence. There are now ten. Instead of one person radiating influence, ten people are doing so. Power works by division. Influence works by multiplication. Some things in life are zero-sum games. The more I share, the less I have. If I have 10 pounds and I give, I split it up between nine different people, I will be poorer than I originally was. If I have a candle, and I like candle, nine more candles with it, I will have 10 times as much light. Avram held no position of power, yet he had unsurpassed influence. He never imposed his will on others or sought to rule. Rather, through the influence of his teaching and his personality, he inspired the people around him. They inspired others, and the light which originated from Avram's candle shone ever more brightly. Avram shared what he considered to be dear to him, and through that he received more. Rabbi Sachs did not keep his brilliance to himself. He did not flee to ivory towers to discuss lofty questions of philosophy with academics. Rather, he took his wisdom and he shared it with the world around him. And by doing so, his influence grew. And soon, like our great-great-grandfather Avram before him, he too became an Asielokim of his generation. Now, all of this explains how he did it. But why was he so successful? What made Avram so successful? The Medrash offers us a glimpse as to why Avram merited to be called this unique tag of Nisielokim. The Medrash Rabbah in Parshish Vayera quotes Rabbi Shul ben Korcha, who picks up on one word that you find Avram saying a few times in his life. Avram Allah Hineni. Avram said, Here I am. Hineni Lakuna, Hineni Lamalchus. Zacha Lakuna, Zacha Lamalchus. Zacha Lakuna, Dechsev Nishba Hashem Velo Yinachem Atta Kern Lolam. Lamalchus, Nasi Alokim Atta. Reb Shurban Korcha says that Avraham, because Avraham said Hineni, he merited to be considered a king and a Kohen. Avraham said to Hashem, Hineni, here I am. An unqualified answer to service. If you want me for Kuna, I'll do it. I'm here. If you want me for kingship, I'm here. I will do whatever you need me to do. And because of that, Hashem made him be respected both as a Kohen, and as a prince. What is the Medrash teaching us? Why, through saying Hineni, did Avram merit to be called Nesielokim? Because Hineni is the ultimate answer to the call of service. I am here for you. No preconditions. No stipulations. You tell me what to do and I will do it. A person who says Hineni focuses on the mission and not on themselves. Avram focused on spreading God's word through the world. He wasn't chasing personal glory. He was working for something greater and he became greater because of it. The reason why influence changes the world more than power is that power is about a person and influence is about a message. And that is why influence will always spread more than power. Because power is centralized on people, on a person. Move away from that person and the power begins to dissipate and weaken. Influence is about the message. That message can be spread from person to person, from generation to generation. And only become stronger. It will always outlive power because messages always outlive people. Avram said, Hineni, here I am. Send me. The message important is important, not the person. By doing so, people respected the person and the message. And now, three and a half millennia since the passing of Avram Avinu, 
His influence stretches across the entire globe. I believe that Rabbi Sachs also found a moment in his life where he said, Hineni, he went on a mission, he went on a, he went on a, miss- on a mission and he carried a message. And through doing so, he became a Messiah Lokim almost with unparalleled influence. And if anyone thinks that he had a position of power and he became a Nasir Lokim through being the chief rabbi, just look. When he gave, he didn't become a Nasir Lokim through being chief rabbi, he elevated the position of chief rabbi. And my biggest proof to that is, when he stopped being chief rabbi, his influence only grew greater. But where did this sense of mission come from? In the small time which we have today, I want to focus on two small stories which Rabbi Sachs often fondly repeated. Rabbi Sachs would often tell a story about his father. He would walk to Shul holding his father's hand and ask him all sorts of deep questions about the Torah and about Judaism. He was a philosopher already from a young age. His father was not a rabbi. His father was not even a philosopher. He didn't even go to university. He used to sell shmatas. He was a textile seller. His father, like many Jews of his generation, was a man of great faith, but not had the benefits of Jewish education like people of our generation have had. And after a short while, he could no longer answer the questions that his little boy was asking him. But he told Rabbi Sachs something which I believe to be more powerful than any one answer to any one question. I didn't have an education, he said. And so I don't know the answers to your questions. But one day, you will have the education I missed. And then you will teach me the answers. Rabbi Sachs grew up and answered many questions. But he did more than that. He realized that he must answer questions. He took the mantle and understood that if I have an education, I must go and give it to others. I believe that Rabbi Sachs' father's message became one of the underlying messages and motivations of Rabbi Sachs' life and mission. He empowered him. He told him that he could find answers and that he would. He was a model of faith in Hashem, which stands strong regardless of whether questions have answers, and a model of faith in people, in his son, that he could grow and be able not just to teach others, but also to teach his own father. And Rabbi Sachs kept that faith and passed it on. So much of what he said and what he taught was about inspiring next generations, continuing Jewish education, inspiring others, especially the youth, to be Jewish leaders. In his words, good leaders create followers. Great leaders create leaders. There was no ambition to hold on to the mic and not give it to others. There was no inclining that if he is teaching, then I'm not. Because as we said, Great influencers care about the message and the mission and not about the man. I met Rabbi Sachs when I was 19 years old. He was chief rabbi at the height height of his powers with many, many important things to do. Yet he invited me to his house, cleared a small space in his packed schedule and sat down to me one to one and talked to me. Why? Because he heard I wanted to be a rabbi. And he could give me advice. So he sat with me. And it wasn't even for a long time, but that wasn't what was important. He sat with me because he wanted to encourage me. It wasn't anything special about me. He felt that anyone who wanted to teach Torah and lead people should be encouraged. He was always positive. He was always encouraging when he spoke to and about younger generations. This explains why, upon his retirement, when he was asked to highlight the greatest achievement of his tenure, As chief rabbi, he didn't reference the 20 books which he had written or the relationships with people of power they'd managed to foster over the years. It was building schools for the Jewish community and and ensuring Jewish continuity, which brought him his greatest pride. The second story features the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe challenged Rabbi Sachs from a young age and almost demanded from him that he do his bit for the Jewish people. Rabbi Sachs often related that the Lubavitcher Rebbe's whole mission was tikkun, fixing the world after the Holocaust. If Hitler tracked, tracked down every Jew in hate, then Lubavitch would track them all down in love. It was the Lubavitcher Rebbe who explicitly instructed Rabbi Sachs not to ask, what do I want from life? 
But what does life want from me? Or in other words, in words more familiar to us today, he taught him to answer, Hineni. When Rabbi Sachs was about to be appointed chief rabbi, he wrote a letter to the Lubavitch Rebbe, which was his last correspondence with the Rebbe before he died. Like a good Talmud, Rabbi Sachs asked the Lubavitch Rebbe whether he should become chief rabbi. The Lubavitch Rebbe didn't write back. In fact, he barely said anything at all. In fact, he sent Rabbi Sachs' letter straight back to him. But he made one small sign on the letter indicating that he should change the order of two words. The Rebbe made the sign above the words, should I become chief rabbi? When it got back to Rabbi Sachs in our read, I should become chief rabbi. I believe that the Rebbe wasn't merely answering Rabbi Sachs by doing a funny little trick. He was telling Rabbi Sachs something which he needed to tell himself. He needed to tell himself, I should become chief rabbi. He was telling him to hear the call, to realize there was a mission to do, and that he could do it. In the end of one of his books, Rabbi Sachs writes a letter to an atheist. It's the end of Rabbi Sachs' book on trying to explain how problems in science can be aligned with the Torah. And in it, in typical Rabbi Sachs style, he references a famous play, he calls it famous, it's not so famous, called Nathan the Wise, which was written, if I remember correctly, in the 1700s by a German Jew, and it's based off a story which happens in the city of Jerusalem in the 1200s. The Sultan, who has recently conquered the city of Jerusalem from the Crusaders, from the Christian Crusaders, calls in a man called Nathan the Wise to him and asks him, what is the true religion? Christianity, Islam, or Judaism? Now, Nathan the Wise realizes he's being asked a trick question. If he says Judaism, he's going to insult the Sultan. If he says Islam, he's betraying his own faith. If he says Christianity, well, he's doing both. So he's not quite sure what to answer him. So instead, in true rabbinic style, he decides to tell a story. Once upon a, ma- once upon a time, there was a man who had a special ring made. The ring made him beloved of God and beloved of man. And it passed from father to son, from generation to generation, this special magical ring, which made him beloved of God and beloved of man. Until one time, there was a father who received it, who had three sons. The father didn't want to distinguish between his various children, so he had two fake rings made, which looked indistinguishable from the original ring. He gave one to each son, and they all thought that they got the true original ring. At the father's funeral, all the children realized that they'd been tricked, and they all had the ring. So they all started to argue amongst themselves, who, who does the true ring belong to? And in the end, they went in front of a very wise judge. And the judge said to them, one second, whoever has the true ring is beloved of God and beloved of man. All three sons went away and tried to make themselves beloved of God and beloved of man. Bravo, said the sultan, and he let Nathan the wise go. Rabbi Sachs was true to his own faith even when hard circumstances made it hard. But he was beloved of God and to everyone who he was close to, he became beloved of man. And he knew he had the true ring. He was proud of his Judaism. He was proud of his Torah. And that was the true ring which he carried around. And through his personal conduct, through his inspiring teaching, he showed everyone that the ring he was carrying was a true ring. I've chosen to talk about Rabbi Sachs' mission and message more than any of his teachings. There'll be time over the months and years to come 
to discuss his many, many works. But it's his sense of mission which I think can inspire us beyond all his teaching. For missions are not reserved for the great and brilliant, for Gedolim and for chief rabbis. They are there for us all. In what will sadly be his last set of pre-Rosh Hashanah drushes, Rabbi Sachs reminds us, we are all capable of great good, and we should never say, I can't do it. I'm not up to it. I'm damaged goods. No, the truth is, we are each the rare and special products. In the coming year, may we do the good that Hashem needs us to do. Rabbi Sachs passed away in the middle of Shabbos morning on Parashas Vayera, where Jewish communities across the world were reading, and the Jews of the world can now say in full confidence about Rabbi Sachs. And he has shown us the way. We have lost the foremost Nisielokim of our generation. But as with all great influences, the man might be lost, but the message remains. And his greatest overriding message was one of continuity. He would focus on what we must build, not what we have lost. His focus was always the Jewish future. That is us. Everyone who is in this room, everyone who is born with that greatness of being Jewish thrust upon them. Because we know that not only the candles give light to others, but they ensure that even when the original candle, which lit up so many candles, is extinguished, the candles that it lit continue to shine and can light even more candles with that original light. Let us follow his sivoy. Let us hear the call, because the call is always there to be heard. When we hear it, let us say, Hineni, here I am, I can, and I will. Tainish Masos Rabbis Rabbis